miles over and three miles down. A history of mining, miners and their families in Castlecomer, County Kilkenny. Hello and welcome to Three Miles Over and Three Miles Down, which tells the rich history and heritage of the Castlecomer mines. In this series, we hear the story of the mines and mining in the Castlecomer area of Kilkenny from prehistory to 1969, when the mines closed, which ended centuries of iron and coal mining in the area and the surrounding Leinster coalfield. In the first programme of the series, we travel back to prehistoric times, to the actual foundation of coal, and we'll hear some of the history of mines and mining. We'll hear about the initial mining of coal and the eventual opening of the Deer Park Mine. We'll hear about the Wandersford family history, whose name was associated with the mines from the mid-1600s. We'll also hear about the types of mining employed in earlier times. But first, we get a sense of the scale of the mines themselves, which cover the counties of Kilkenny, Leash and Carlow. Seamus O'Connor, a local historian, brought me on a road trip to see the extent of the Leinster coalfield and the Deer Park mines. You're saying to me that the, the, if you were to look at, at coal mining in Castle Comer, it's not just in one place. It, this spreads across, as we've heard, like the Leinster field spreads across from oh, yeah. Castle Comer all the way over to County Leash. Yeah, but in actual fact, none of it was in Comer which was a kind of a, a very deliberate strategy by the ones family to keep it away from what's a beautiful town and their own estate. <coughs> but um, no, the colliery is a defined area which goes more or less from Coolbawn up to the top of Wolf Hill, across to Rossmoor and back over to Skahana. It's that valley that we will see when we look back down from Wolf Hill and look back down from um, top of the top of Gorkine. Um there were many mines throughout that and they were mainly developed in the beginning by skilled people that the Wonders family brought over from Yorkshire when they came they had the skill to under subcontract to develop mines they knew how um, the Irish people who came in then to populate Morgan only came later so in effect the Yorkshire people were here before the most of the Irish that's why you'll see so many names throughout the call, right? The Rhines, the Nolans, the Walches. Wouldn't have been native 300 years ago. They obviously came in from Tipperary, Wexford, Carlow. You know, they came in to work here. Um, when the people came from Yorkshire, they had to be given some land in case any of the subcontract mining ventures they took on failed. So they were generally given lands at the very top of the plateau, ranging from Rossmore right down to Mukhali. You'll see names across there still, the Shirley's, the Minchins, um, Blacks, Whites, Marshes, all these people in coming to an, an uncivilised area back 300 years ago brought with them well they were able to fall back into the farming if the pits failed, many of which did, but, but those families integrated very well into the colliery over those years and be a very big population of you know people who come from that tradition here. Seamus mentioned earlier that the Wandersfords didn't have mines very close to Castlecomer where the estate itself was built, but there was a decision taken to move closer to Castlecomer and that led to the setup of the Deer Park Mine. It, it was the first time that Wandersford kind of had a mine anywhere near town. Up to then he had stayed away from resources that were near the, his own estate and the town. And that opened in the 1920s. But it was so good and so big that he needed workforce from maybe all of the smaller mines, many of which he closed, 
to bring to there. Directly opposite to Deer Park you have what was known as the 28 Acres, which opened up as um, Opencast in the late 1960s. But by then Wondersford, the Wondersford family had left the area and they had gone back to live in Carlow. But um, this was the, the Opencast then was him allowing somebody in to mine on the estate lands on the domain. So he was probably friendly with Robert McGregor and McGregor's did the open cast on that but they got the cream of the cream I mean they got very good seams of coal with grit depth uh, close to the ground let's say 40, 60 foot light so he open cast mined that for maybe 15 years and that's the one you see across from the park We carried on on our trip around the region and we passed one of the original buildings that would have been in place and as Seamus explained it would have been a stopping off point on the way out to Clock Village. We're now approaching Lacey's Saloon which was the first um, kind of pit stop for men leaving work heading back towards where the majority of them were from. Clock Morning Road, Crutyard, Newtown. Lacey's as you see is still a lovely attached pub and uh, John Lacey and his mother have put it back as it was and it's beautiful to see and it's, it's a real heritage uh, a real part of our heritage yes we're now on the, the link on towards Clough Clock Village is a beauty lovely triangular square with some thatched houses around it um, Clock was a centre for a lot of old mining back to the year 1700 I suppose a um, lot of old family names there. Extra houses were built by the state for miners then back in the 1930s, 1940s, which would be mainly the Chasford estate. Um, that's why they're so far from the town centre, so the nearest they could get um, available land, I suppose. To understand the reason why coal mining took place in Castle Comer and the area in the first place, we need to go back to prehistoric times. I spoke with Siobhan Power, who's geologist with the Geological Survey of Ireland, and I first asked her what was so special about the Leinster Coalfield region. Well, what's special is we've so little coal in Ireland. So the story, it contributes to the story of coal, of development, but we've so little of it in Ireland compared to the other island, as in Britain. So their history, their industrial revolution went off in one direction because they had so much coal. We had very, very little coal. So I suppose we, we put great importance in the areas that had coal. Um <clears throat> The geological history of Ireland is long and complex. Our, we, it's 1.8 billion years of stories we have in, on this island. We um, started as two different, two different parts. The two different parts of Ireland didn't start together. The northern part has connections to Greenland, the Americas. The southern part has connections to Australia and, and Africa. Uh, but we all started near the South Pole. Right. And we've, Ireland is special as a whole island in that it tracks that journey of those two continents coming together and the closure of an ocean and everything that goes with the closure of an ocean, volcanoes, earthquakes, mountains, all of, uh, mountains as high as the mod- modern day Himalayas, all of that. Then we go into the southern 
latitudes that are deserts. So all of um, Cork and Kerry has southern old red sandstone. So the rocks of Cork and Kerry are red and green because it's old red sandstone from the southern deserts. Then we move into where we're going to talk about Castlecomer directly. So then we move into the tropics. By this time, Ireland was together. <laughs> the two continents had, had met um, we moved into the tropics. So when you think of tropics, you think of beautiful warm seas, shallow warm seas, coral reefs. Think of Bahamas, the Great Barrier Reef. And that's exactly what we were like in Ireland. So most of the middle of the country is limestone, uh, corals, all from the tropics. And then we move into the the sea retreated uh, we were moving a little bit further north, but the climate was changing. This, there was great forests. Um, the amphibians were the animals that had taken over the land. So we, we had the started life and everything evolved. But at this period that we're talking about, the amphibians, so modern day amphibians, we're talking about frogs and salamanders, but these were, uh, some of them were much bigger, but these were these animals that could live in water, out of water. Um, The great forests had started to die off. It was very, very wet, quite uh, humid, so high high enough temperatures. And all those plants were dying and they were getting um, preserved and very, so very organic rich. And that's where we get our coal. So that's the start of the birth start of the rocks that would eventually become coal and we have those trackways uh, of the amphibians so we can see the two parts to the story we can see the the plants building up and decaying and trapping all this carbon and we can see the footprints as well of these animals so it's a wonderful snapshot of life in Ireland in the upper uh, sorry the upper carboniferous so we're talking about 305 310 million years ago we're talking about a very long time ago and we were at latitudes so tropical latitudes much closer to the equator so very very different but all of that if you pick up a lump of Castlecomer coal you have all that story trapped there you have the whole so for geologists we can make wild and wonderful stories about out of any rocks we we pick up but all of that is really there and it's all preserved in the layers of rock in particularly in the coal but in the, the all of the layers of rock that's there so those layers um so there was shale so all that the vegetation got trapped shale muds um, some sand as well all that got and layer upon layer upon layer and with the increased pressure so as the layers continued there was increased pressure and temperature <coughs> these carbon rich layers converted to the uh, anthracite that we know uh, is the very high grade coal that was worked and is still in the ground in the Castlecomer area. You find out very quickly from talking to people involved in mining that the coal in Castlecomer and the Leinster coalfield generally was of a very high standard. Siobhan Power explained to me how geology played a part in the production of high quality coal. Because of increased temperatures and pressure. So if you have a full 
grading, you start with turf, peat. So that so the modern peat bogs that we have, they're only about 4,000 years old, but they formed in exactly the same way. A lot of vegetation uh, trapped in these uh, lakes didn't decay. And so and they, so that's kind of a lower grade on this big scale of of uh, from turf to coal. Um, if that was buried, it would eventually become something closer to coal, but it's at the surface because it's only 4,000 years old. So then you go into lignite, which is a lower grade coal, but and bituminum, um, and then uh, anthracite is the highest grade of coal. It's very high in carbon, therefore when it burns, it gives very high cal- it's very high energy. So you get good heat, or if you're producing um, for electricity, you know, you're, you get high returns on that. It's also got, the gases have all been squeezed out, if you like. Um, so it it's better, it's not, it's a smokeless coal. Um, very few impurities. So it's, it's pure coal, if you like. It's very high grade. One of the other notable and rare features in the prehistoric era of Castle Comer is the sheer volume and quality of fossils. Jonathan Mason was responsible for the construction of the coal mining exhibition at the Discovery Park in Castle Comer and he had first-hand knowledge of the finds. The geological story of coal is very interesting but there's a special quality to what was found in the mines in the 19th century in Castle Comer where some of the earliest four-legged creatures to walk on land were found in in uh, in the the bottom of the the Jarrow seam, and uh, this was in the early eighteen sixties. Darwin had just poly- published the Origin of Species in eighteen fifty nine. Gentleman scientist called Brownrigg. Um, was interested in plant fossils from the the mines and used to go down the mines and look at them and he uh, recognised that he was looking at something special when he saw these beautifully preserved amphibian fossils and he called in Professor of Geology in, in Trinity and it was decided to get these professionally recorded and drawn and Huxley, who was one of uh, Darwin's close connections, came over and um, published uh, descriptions of, I think it was 10, uh, if not more, 10 or 12 genuses of, of amphibians, um, five of which I believe uh, were previously unknown to science. So those fossils are the type fossils for those species of amphibians. So when these crop up anywhere else in the world, if the the baseline for identifying any subsequent fossils of these species is to compare with the description of Huxley's Huxley's descriptions of 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 these fossils. So as as a yardstick these fossils are enormously significant uh, the type specimens of uh, several different species of of amphibians. I was intrigued with the answer about the fossils, so I thought to myself the next logical place to go is to a fossil expert. 
I made contact with Matthew Parks, who's assistant keeper at the National Museum of Ireland, and he has a particular interest in paleontology and fossils. He's also had personal experience of access to and the care of the fossils in Castle Comer. I asked him first why the fossils in Castle Comer were of such a high standard. That's a difficult one to answer in that really it's it's down to chance in a way you know just the 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 um conditions just happen to preserve detail really well in the shales um in the coal seam the coal kind of um it 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 just allows that preservation to to take place with with a lot of detail it's it's really down to chance in many fossil localities um the 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 reptiles were all described very early on in the history of paleontology and so that's that's one of the reasons that they become a kind of reference point for other finds subsequently um you know that the first description of of particular species um, becomes that reference that other people then have to compare with um so and and the 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 reptiles were beautifully illustrated as well in uh, big monographs at life size and and um superb illustrations which um there are some on obviously on display and so you know that that that's a a yardstick i suppose that that you'd use or other paleontologists would have to use um there may have been other places where these things were preserved as well but a lot of the coalfield geology of Ireland has been removed since. We, we're just left with the Castlecoma coalfield and the Slevada coalfield and the Erigna but potentially there was a lot more of that across other parts of the country that was eroded in the 300 million years or so since it was since it was formed. No history of mining in Castlecomer is complete without mentioning the Wandersford family who owned the mines from the mid-1600s to the closure of the mines in 1969. Geoffrey Pryor Wandersford is a holder of the family archive and he gave me a brief history of the family starting with Christopher Wandersford. He um, he was the 10th um, generation of Wandersfords at uh, Kirklington so he was uh, you know a relatively wealthy man and um, he went off to Cambridge at the age of 15 uh, which was quite common uh, at that time uh, riding on horseback all the way from Yorkshire to, to Cambridge and there he met uh, Thomas Wentworth who had large estates in South Yorkshire and he was a very ambitious man and um, was to play a big role in Christopher's life um, Christopher's father died in uh, when Christopher himself was only 20 and Christopher then studied law in London at Gray's Inn and returned and lived happily for some years on his estate in Yorkshire, in Kirklington in Yorkshire. And then he was persuaded by Thomas Wentworth to stand for Parliament and was elected for the first time in 1621 and subsequently was re-elected several times and tended to spend more and more time in London, again riding there on horseback, horseback, which took five days each way. 
so um, he got used to, to doing that, and um, he learned quite a lot of, of the way of politicians because there was gro- growing problems between James I and his parliament, and Christopher gradually became more prominent and was was promoted to various posts in England. Then when Charles I succeeded James I, he asked Thomas Wentworth to become Lord Deputy of Ireland, which is the chief governor of Ireland, really um, what in other countries would have been called the Viceroy, the King's representative in Ireland. And uh, Thomas asked his friend Christopher to become the master of the rolls, which was agreed to by Charles. The master of the rolls is a a senior legal officer of the crown, and um, really, originally, he kept the the various statutes in, in his office, but... Uh, it was quite an important um, legal role, and he was also made a member of the Privy Council in Ireland. So that that's uh, how he got to uh, going to to Ireland. As we've heard, coal and iron have been in the Castle Comer and surrounding areas since the earliest times. Local historian James Murphy explained the early history of mining to me on his farm and quarry near Faroda, which also contains one of the earliest iron mines in the Castle Comer area. Wandersford, uh, uh, Coots were the main people doing, uh, <coughs> excuse me, doing the iron. And uh, Wandersford and... Uh, Horsfield, it seems to have had a bit of a difference, but anyway, eventually, Wandersford bought the iron smelter off him and worked it on until 1720, I think. And uh, he had a, another s- small, smelt- small smelter at, uh, out in Drumgool, and he got the iron in a hamuki. And they were making uh, ordnance and cannonballs and all that sort of thing. But uh, most of the iron was exported to London. And it was sent down the river Nore in cots to meet up with a boat to take it to England and London. So then while they were doing all that and digging out the iron ore, they came on coal. Uh, uh, coal. So around 1700, uh, up to about 1740, I think, uh, they sunk up here in parcels of Faroda and the pit was known as is known as Purcell's Pit. It's about I think a hundred and fifty foot deep. And uh, it was a bell mine at first and then the uh, the water beat them. There was too much water in it. But the Newcomen engine, steam engine, was developed in England and it was I think the man that brought the first steam engine to Faroda was a Mr Dicker. And they were able to pump the water out then and develop the pit much further. And then at another stage, then the water became too great and the pump wasn't able to keep it pumped out. So they had a great feat of engineering. They went down to the side of the hill and they dug a tunnel straight in and they met the coal, coal face 
and let out the water, let off the water, and there was no need for any pump then. So that was that then. Yeah, no, to keep going, we can, we can go over. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about the, the different types of mining. You mentioned bell mining. Bell mining. It was all bell mining at first. Okay, and what was bell mining? Bell mining is where they went down, dug all around as, as much as they could until the air got bad or the water got too much. And then they would dig another one over further. But they also met up with, with another bell, uh, bell mine for two ventilate the pit because when they had two like the air would be sucked from one to the other like a chimney and that I'm going to move the microphone yeah. to get a bit more because we're looking at each other now and yeah. so okay so that was that was bell mining uh, and that's what happened and there was a huge amount of bell mining in Feroda and uh, it seems from that there was a, a five foot seam in Feroda. Now that was that's that was rare in the coal field. But uh all the land is just fell down a bit where the the they didn't prop it really properly, like you know, or they hadn't the means of doing it, I suppose. But um then it said there was so much coal piled up in a heap, just the uh, old people used to say that it combusted. It it went on fire, you know, it heated up and just, and then when they went to take away the coal, it was useless, it was all ashes inside. So that was another thing. And um, yeah, that's about that now in Feroda. Um, the iron smelting then was? No, well, the bell mines had to be near the surface. They were only 60 feet from 12, from 12 feet down to 60. In some places, the coal went right to the surface. You know, you just, but in Feroda, would whatever kind of, uh, whatever kind of a crush came with the formation of the rock, it seems to have lifted the coal up. You know, it got crushed up with the limestone and, uh, if they found it coming to the surface where, like in the 28 acres, it was a four-foot seam and went down 70 feet. So they just followed it down and became millionaires. <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't have to go anywhere, no prop and nothing, and you just take it out. Coal mining is regarded as having started in the mid-1600s. Maura Downey from Castlecomer has written her PhD in history on the subject and gave me a sense of the first recorded mention of coal. The earliest record of the discovery and mining of coal in the Castlecomer area dates from probably to the 1640s. As Gerald Boat, writing about it in 1652, refers to the discovery, and I'll quote, Already one coal mine had been found out in Ireland a few years since, by mere hazard and without having been sought for. The mine is in the province of Leinster, in the county of Carlow, seven miles from Eidos, which is their version of Eduok, which was the ancient territory of this area. In the same hill where the iron mine was of Mr. Christopher Wansford, uh, in that iron mine, after, after that for a great while, they had drawn iron ore out of it, and that by degrees they were gone deeper, and the coals were sufficient to furnish a whole country. That was the first reference I found to the coal. And um, 
Uh, in the later 18th century, Christopher Wallisford's great-great-grandson, Thomas Comber, he wrote about the life of his ancestor and he included that Christopher Wallisford dug far and found an excellent colliery, a blessing till then unknown to that part of the world. In this colliery, he also found a great quantity of ironstone. Uh, now, the clay ironstone nodules which are known as sideritic ironstone, they were used for iron smelting, which was powered by wood charcoal. And as the floor of the ironstone open pit was progressively deepened over the course of the operation, a coal seam was eventually intersected. The succession overlying the old three-foot coal is rich, that's the name given to one of the seams, it's rich in sideritic nodules and the seam is interpreted as being that coal. Coal was in fact used in the Castlecomer area prior to the discovery of the old three foot, and both also records that local smiths extracted little small coals from outcrops in the Castlecomer area, and presumably had been doing doing so for many years previously. So as far as I can see, as far as I could find, that's the earliest reference. As we've heard, the Wandersford family have ties to Kilkenny and to Castlecomer since the 1640s. Geoffrey Pryor Wandersford explained to me how the family first came to Kilkenny. Basically, um, Wentworth, as Lord Deputy, uh, was keen to uh, expand uh, plantations, as they were called, um, in the area of Kilkenny and Tipperary. That was to bring a over English Protestants to uh, take up property in those areas and um, he uh, needed help from James Butler who was the 12th Earl of Ormond who had uh, nominal uh, ownership of um, huge areas, areas of North Kilkenny now, Christopher, as you say, acquired 20,000 acres in and around Castle Coma. Um, part of it very good land, but also including quite a lot of land in the hills around Castle Coma, uh, which really was very poor quality land, uh, full of rushes and not very suitable for agriculture. But um, it was uh, he paid um, both Ormond and Lord Londonderry, who also had a claim to land in that area. There's a dispute about how much he paid. Some sources say he paid two thousand pounds, but other sources say that that was the value of the rental for that area uh, but others say that he paid £20,000 but even if he paid £20,000 that was only £1 an acre so it was a pretty good purchase. Of course that meant displacing people who were already there particularly the O'Brennan clan who had inhabited the area for some time and uh, that's what happened of course with the plantations all over Ireland 
the the native Irish were displaced, but um, they the most of the Brennans stayed on in the area and um, were became tenants of Wandersford who allowed them and and other tenants to live rent-free for the first three years of his ownership. Christopher Wandersford would have had experience of coal mining having come from Yorkshire and while initially he started work on an iron ore smelting facility, he moved on to coal. He also developed the town of Castlecomer as we'd know it today. In speaking with Geoffrey, he mentioned a diary that would have been of the time and it gives a sense of the scale and the type of work that Christopher Wandersford put in to develop the town of Castlecomer. I think the best way to to illustrate that is um, from a diary that was written by his daughter Alice who um, married and became Alice Thornton. It's quite a, a famous diary. Uh, that historians would know of, at any rate, and also um, an account written by her son, her daughter's husband, son-in-law, who became Bishop um, Bishop of Durham, or rather Dean of Durham, actually. And I'll just read a little bit of, of it. Um, They said this estate consisted of all kinds of ground, arable, woodland, moorland of ling, that's heather, uh, some good as any in England so as to afford excellent crops for full seven years without laying in it any manure. The whole contained by survey 20,000 acres. In the first place, Christopher Wandersford collected people who understood every branch of agriculture, planting of woods for timber, for quick sets, etc. In the next place, he built near the castle an elegant town. The houses were all of freestone, very convenient, and with a noble marketplace in the centre. In the third place, he stocked this town with most useful manufacturers for employment and relief of the poor through the country and the increase of commerce in the kingdom. He he dug for and found an excellent colliery, a blessing until then unknown in the, this part of the world. Actually, that wasn't true because there, there had been small-scale um, mining, as I, I suggested. In this colliery, he also found a great quantity of ironstone. He erected, under care of one Captain Steele, a forge in which were wrought ironworks of all sorts, even ordnance, and the greater two, most great, and curious pieces. This cost Sir Christopher full £1,500. He brought a stream of the river into the town to water it plentifully. He walled up a race to keep the corn mills and iron forges continually going. He erected a mill which made size in such abundance and consequently cheapness that the Irish, who had hitherto suffered their grass, which their cattle could not eat, to rot on the ground. 
now imitated in, in the English manner in mowing and preserving it in hay. Um, in the last case, uh, as the country involved and there with commerce, Sir Christopher had determined to add one thing still necessary to the improvement of both by making travellers' passage more convenient, a good inn at Castle Coma, which he therefore built of free stone after the English fashion, and then let it to an honest and substantial man who, gra- who gave great relief to travellers, especially from Dublin to Kilkenny. To bring things up to more recent times, Geoffrey explained that over the years since the Wandersfords took over control of Castle Comer, a number of approaches were taken to managing the mines. Mostly they were leased out, but at the end of the 19th century and at the beginning of the 20th century, there was an attempt to bring everything back under Wandersford control. As we'll hear, this fell to Richard Pryor Wandersford, known as the captain, who came to the mines and the ownership of the mines at a very young age indeed. Well, Four generations after the first Christopher Wandersford uh, started mining at Castle Coma, uh, things carried on and uh, expanded a little, but not not greatly. Um, many of the family, uh, in fact, let out the mines to managers who then sublet to other people and uh, the family weren't terribly closely involved with the the mines um, but my uh, the after the in the fourth generation the Wandersford heir um, died without a male uh, heir and his daughter, Lady Anne Wandersford, uh, married John Butler, the 17th Earl of Ormond, in 1769. And in the course of uh, the, the, the next generations, she had a son, um, but then that son only had a daughter, which was uh, Sarah Wandersford, because they kept the name Wandersford. And um, she was my grandfather's um, grandmother. So uh, the person who really expanded the mine was my grandfather, Richard Henry Pryor Wandersford. Richard Henry Pryor Wandersford uh, was born in 1870, and his grandmother, who uh, he succeeded in Castle Coma, uh, died uh, in... 1902. So he, in fact, inherited estates in both Yorkshire and in Ireland at the tender age of only 22. We'll return to Richard Pryor Wandersford and indeed to his longtime adversary Nixie Boren in a later programme. Both of those men played an important part in the 20th century development of the mine as mine owner and union organiser respectively. One of the reasons given for the closure of the mine in 1969 was the economies of scale and the economic viability of coal production generally in Ireland. 
Moradoni gives us a sense of the numbers, quantities and the types of productivity issues that applied from the 50s on. The total amount of coal raised and weighed during the early 1950s was from 59,500 tonnes in 1951, increasing to almost 80,000 tonnes in 1954. Uh, The manager expressed his disappointment with the figure of 12.96 hundredweight output per man shift, as he had hoped it would attain 13.25 hundredweight. He considered this look very low in comparison with the UK figure of 24.3 hundredweight. Mr. Wallensford noted, however, that the coal seams were very different and compared the UK seams of 3 to 5 feet with the Deer Park seam of 16 inches. And production figures for collieries in Great Britain in 1953 told that 718,000 weighted earners produced over 2 million tonnes of coal per week. And in the Ruhr Valley in Germany, new equipment was being installed which was capable of raising net tonnages of between 8,000 and 17,600 tonnes per day. Compared with these figures, the Castlecomber operation was insignificant, but as the main operator in Ireland, it was still worth striving to increase productivity. As we know, the Deer Park mine closed in 1969. There was an inevitable sense about the decision and a later programme will deal with this in more detail and will show the efforts made to keep the mines open. For now, let's leave the last word on coal to Siobhan Power of the Geological Survey. Well, yes, there's no more coal being produced in Ireland. As in, yes, our peat bogs are, some of them are... Heading that way. Well, they're being regenerated, thankfully. You know, we've stopped cutting peat in certain areas and we've started to let them rewater and and development of of the moss etc uh, but they're not buried so they won't become it, it humans will be gone <laughs> as we know humans by the time our peat bogs become coal if that ever even happens because we're we're talking millions of years um so there's uh, in other parts of the world of course coal is probably being produced because it's going through the exact same things that we went through um, we have an understanding of the geology of Ireland, so we know exactly how much is carboniferous. So we know these beds, We, we the coal is in the upper carboniferous. Uh, we know how much of that is in the country, both on the surface and deeper than that. So we have a very good understanding of the potential where you know where it's possible, where we could have coal, we we have a good understanding of that for quite a long time now, and it's really just the Leinster coal field. So this area, uh, it's in Arigna in in North Roscommon, a little bit in um, Tipperary, and I think a little bit in Cork and Kerry area as well. But the Leinster coal my coal field. Fields was the biggest uh, area. Thanks for listening. Our next programme will be about the miners who worked in the Deer Park Mine and other mines around Castle Comer. We'll visit the closed Deer Park Mine itself and hear the voices of the remaining miners who spent their lives underground. Three Miles Over and Three Miles Down is a documentary series presented and produced by Martin Bridgman for KCLR with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.